The Lifestylist, episode 52, featuring Daniel Vitalis. I'm Luke Story, a former celebrity fashion stylist and founder of School of Style. For the past 20 years, I've been relentlessly dedicated to my deepest passion, designing the ultimate lifestyle based on the most powerful principles of health and spirituality. The Lifestylist Podcast is a show dedicated to sharing my discoveries and the experts behind them with you. You are listening to part one of a two-part interview with Daniel Vitalis. Don't forget to catch part two this Friday. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your host, Luke Story, and I'm about to take you on a trip deep into the mind of our guest, Daniel Vitalis, in this two-part, two-hour epic interview all about the effects of domestication on humankind. And it's really fun to have Daniel back on the show because he was actually my very first guest. And I'm just such a huge fan of his work and his podcast. I've been on his show, Rewild Yourself, a couple times. So this was kind of a celebration of me being 50-something episodes in and him really giving me the confidence and the encouragement to start my own show after being a fan of his. So it was a super fun interview. We go deep into a lot of different weird subjects. I mean, it gets really crazy, especially in the second half, because Daniel kind of calls me out on a few of my beliefs and things like that. And it's pretty fun. I think this is a pretty mind and consciousness expanding interview or conversation as it were. So some of the things we talk about in this episode are as follows. The problem with PC culture and today's lack of free speech and specifically what it's like for me to live in the PC bully culture of Hollywood that I currently reside in. Dealing with internet trolls and audience criticism. How to defend yourself against dogmatic diet extremists. Going through the different phases of the health and wellness scene, you know, how Daniel went from a raw vegan to someone who eats a predominantly wild food diet, including all sorts of different animals and insects. The importance of keeping an open mind and remaining teachable on all subjects. And how Daniel got his start in the business, which is an interesting story. It sort of happened by accident. And how he became one of the world's most popular personalities in health and personal development. And then finally, we dig into the actual human domestication piece. So what is it and how has it affected us humans negatively? And you're also going to find out some secrets on where this actually happened, like why we ended up where we are with the advent of agriculture and the ruling class and all this. So it turns out that we've been domesticated on purpose and you're going to find out how and why. The truth about our current quality of life versus that of ancient indigenous peoples. How natural humans of the past did not suffer from chronic diseases and mental disorders that we suffer from now. How our modern culture tends to traumatize us as children and the negative effects of human domestication on the human body. Specifically, we go into foot torture, otherwise known as high heels, and men's neckties. Really interesting stuff there. And we also cover something that Daniel's talked a lot about on his show and I've really wanted to cover on mine and that is the trauma involved in male circumcision in the birth process. It's a really weird, archaic practice. There's no reason for it. And it's just a really horrible thing that we do to males. And we also even go into a little bit of female genital mutilation, which is essentially the same thing. But for some reason, we're cool with doing it to boys. And it's really something that's important for people to hear about. And we talk about that. And also how hospitals and doctors profit from many childbirth practices that actually have a negative impact on newborns. So this is a really fact-filled, powerful episode, and there's a lot of great information for you to gain. So sit back, buckle your seatbelts, and get ready to have your mind blown. 
This episode is proudly brought to you by my friends, including Daniel Vitalis over at SirThrival.com. People are always asking me via my website and social media, where's the best place to get the strongest, most potent supplements? And I've got to say, SirThrival has been one of my favorite places to shop for a long, long time. I use their stuff on a daily basis without a doubt. You guys know I don't run ads for anything that I don't personally believe in and use. So what would be something good to check out at SirThrival? We'll check it out. Here's the stuff that I use all the time. The colostrum powder for immunity and workout recovery. I make hot drinks with that, cold drinks with that. I use the pine pollen extract for hormone balance and boosting testosterone. If you've listened to the show, I've mentioned it a lot because if you're a guy, it has like a crazy effect on your body in the morning. And every guy I've ever turned on to, it has that same effect. And it makes you more virile, let's just say. But it's also really good for ladies too, because ladies need testosterone as well. And then one of the coolest things that's new on their site is the bone broth protein powder, which makes getting bone broth into your body just super cheap and fast and easy. So it's got tons of amino acids, digestible protein, heals your gut lining. It's really good for your skin, hair, nails. And it's just so much easier than like making your own bone broth or ordering bone broth in the liquid form online. Now I like the liquid stuff too, but it's nice just to be able to scoop it in a powder. It's a really, really cool product. And then of course the elk antler for enhanced recovery time. It increases your endurance, promotes lean muscle mass, just makes you a badass. I mean, just think about how tough an elk is where well, you're getting the essence of that animal in that extract. So it's really cool. And then of course, lastly, but not least, two of their products that they have been most known for for many years, and that's their chaga and reishi medicinal mushroom extracts. Really good stuff. So get over to surthrival.com, like survive and thrive, surthrival.com. And as a special bonus, since we have Daniel on the show today, you get a 10% discount by using the code LUKE2016. So go to surthrival.com, use the code LUKE2016 to save 10% off your order. Daniel Vitalis is the host of one of my favorite podcasts called Rewild Yourself. He's also the founder of Sir Thrival, a premier line of food-based nutritional supplements. He's a writer, public speaker, entrepreneur, and lifestyle pioneer in the sphere of human health, personal development, and strategic living. He's especially interested in the meeting place of ancestral health and lifestyle design. He's best known for relentlessly flouting taboo and exposing the forces of domestication wherever they lurk in his lucid and provocative interviews, essays, videos, and dynamic on-stage presentations. Daniel can be seen in the hit documentary film Hungry for Change and has been featured in the Huffington Post, Marie Claire magazine, as well as countless other interviews and media appearances. When not traveling, he lives rurally, very rurally, in the Pine State of Maine. Here we are with my buddy, Daniel Vitalis. We're already having way too much fun. Um, we talk on the phone sometimes, and I'm like, God, I wish I was recording this because the conversations are always entertaining. So welcome back to the show, dude. Dude, I'm really proud of you, man. Like just seeing your show take off, come together, seeing your... Sometimes I see the posts you put out, and I'm like, shit, it, it looks so good. <laughs> it looks so good. <laughs> oh, cool, so, man. Thanks. Work, Thanks. Man. I mean, it's just amazing to watch you kind of pull this thing, you know, not only together, but like really well just impressed everything about it looks like it's just good man. well i want to tell you you know i'm going to get mushy here listeners and just forgive me for this but i have to really credit with you know my making a decision to do this which is something i wanted to do for a long time i just had a lot of fear and anxiety about like taking a stab at this but it was you and neil strauss who both said like why aren't you doing this like why aren't you entering this field and specifically i'll never forget one thing you said to me is when we both spoke at neil strauss's intensive 
I got up and did my thing and I was just winging it. You know, I was just sharing all this nutty biohacking stuff and all the lifestyle stuff with his crew. And when I walked off the stage, you looked at me and you were like, dude, do you want to like do this? Cause you totally could. And I was like, what? I'm just like, Hey, I'm just, I just did it for fun. That one time I was like, Oh cool. I can go share some of my wacky stuff with the guys. And you were like, uh, you could totally do yeah, this. You got it. Like, cause the number of people I've seen want to do it. I mean, I'm sure you've seen too. A lot of people want to do it. Not a lot of people actually like have what it takes to do it. And I mean, it was really obvious watching you come off the stage that day. I was like, yep, he does this well. You know, just being able to like talk confidently in front of people is not something most it's isn't it interesting how you hear so many people say like their number one fear is public speaking. Yeah, I hear that all the time. It's yeah. like, man, I got just I'm terrified of like heights, man. I mean, <laughs> I've got a few things like that, you know, but like not not this, this is easy for me. I don't yeah. know. It seems like it's for you, too. Yeah, I get I mean, I think uh, I discovered later in life that I'm an extrovert and I get energy from being around people and engaging with people. Uh, but anyway, man, I just I wanted to thank you formally, officially in front of the world for the vote <laughs> of confidence. And just it, it really actually helped me kind of push me over the line. And then once I started telling people about it, I kind of locked myself into it. And I was like, shit, now I have to actually do it because <laughs> I told a few people like, yeah, I think I'm going to do a podcast. And then for like a year, people are like, when's it coming out? When's it coming out? And I was like, God damn. So yeah, I remember that phase too. I, I don't know. I feel like I'm like in that position now where I was like, yeah, you should do it. And then I watch you run out ahead of me. I'm like, wait a second. Like, hang on. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll see about that. I don't know if I'm quite there, but um, I'm getting there, but it's cool because we share I think you've had me on your show a few times and a lot of my listeners came from you and I think we both kind of have the same sort of philosophy about life but approach it in a different way. I mean, we yeah. certainly have a radically different lifestyle being that you're like this wild man living out in the woods and I'm I'm very much like fighting domestication living in the city. Yeah. Um, so we already kind of did a dive in. By the way, folks, if you like this one, go back to episode two. Daniel was my very first guest, actually. Oh, and also, dude, we're celebrating episode number 50. This is number 50 right really? here. Really? Yeah. No so I mean, it's kind of a landmark. But we, we did one on, I called it Farming and the Fall of Man, which is kind of about... Which episode was it for you? Number two. Was, number two. Yeah, I remember being like, I called you up and was like, are you sure you don't want to like maybe re-record that? I was like, I kind of <laughs> went... On a lot of things there. I felt like I was kind of just too full of like testosterone that day or something. You published it, whatever. It's whatever. It, I think it, I think it set the tone. I mean, yeah. the feedback that I get from people on the show, dude, is uh, they're like, I really appreciate the realness and the vulnerability and the authenticity. Yeah. And I think in episode two, you set the tone for that. It's like you have a way of seeing things and, you know, that's yeah. you're right. It's like yesterday I put out this episode with John Gray and I got really good feedback. And the one I did before with him, the feedback that's positive is mostly from women. They just, they love the stuff that I talk about with him. And yesterday I got kind of a negative comment on Instagram from um, a woman that was like, this is so, what did she say? Like um, Heteronormative? Yeah, white male heteronormative. <laughs> I'm like, I don't even know what that means, but there's two kind of older white dudes talking. So that's naturally going to occur, I think, you know. Dude, I... So she I goes. Be more she, sick of that shit. She goes. You got to get Kim Kim and Nami on, so because I want to hear. Like, I don't want a man telling me like how my sexuality is experienced. And I thought, well, good point. I I will. I'll actually maybe reach out to you and try and connect with Kim. You know, other than a few things like that, which I appreciate the criticism, whether it's constructive or destructive. I, I definitely look at it and think, wow, is there something more that I can deliver? Uh, yeah. But when you start out that episode, I didn't get any like you know, hate mail from vegans or something. <laughs> yeah, but that was early in. That <laughs> yeah. was early in. Like now, because you were like, yeah, I don't think that's a great idea for your body and whatever. Uh, and, the, you know, just historically the, the relevance there. But 
I'm just like, I don't want to be politically correct. I can't fucking stand that shit. And I, at the same time, I'm compassionate, I think, and I don't want to offend people if possible. But it's like, dude, you can't tiptoe around some of this material. It just has to be said. And if somebody doesn't dig it, then there's a million other podcasts for them to listen to. It's not like there's a lack of variety. I was listening to this comedian, Bill Burr, yesterday. I don't know if you've heard this guy. Yeah, yeah, I've been watching I can't even him. believe Netflix put his stuff on. I mean, I'm, it's so politically incorrect. But he said so many things that I really appreciated. And one, he was talking about with a grandparent where you bring something up and they just go off like down some road where you're like, oh, never say that in public. Like the lack of political correctness in that. I feel like sometimes when people are out criticizing with the political, like the political correctness police, it's like, are you even talking to me? Are you talking to like a generation before me? Because I'm not even on board with the stuff you're blaming me for. Right, like I'm right. on board. Like leave me alone. I'm on board with you guys. Like I'm not against what you're doing. Like chill out. You know, it's like so intense the attack. I mean, because we're in the heat of it right now. I feel like more than yeah. ever. You know. Yeah, I know. We were texting and we're like, let's make sure we avoid any political talk. <laughs> like, yeah, and here we, we are. <laughs> definitely. Well, this, I'm not. You know, we haven't touched specifically on politics, but you're one of the few guys I think. I can talk to about that that's open-minded enough to see things from, you know, let's just say different um, a different perspective. In Hollywood, I mean, you can't, it's like I live in Nazi Germany. If you express a view different than sort of the popular view, you will be bullied and ostracized. And we're all like terrified out here. Like to and that's so weird because it's something. coming from people who are saying that they're tired of the bullying and they're tired of being, and it's like, but you're doing that to me. <laughs> I, I'm just out. It's, it just doesn't make any sense. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. But it's, it's funny because like, I think of myself as like ultra, ultra, ultra liberal to the point where I actually believe in, you know, autonomy and personal freedom and freedom of right. speech but it's like the liberal culture that i live in seems to be actually against that yeah, which is totally weird but anyway we better we seriously better not i've been <laughs> i've been saying ever since i started to speak publicly i've been saying if you watch any movement long enough it typically becomes the opposite of what it said it was going to be what it started off to become so you watch like over time, it ends up inverting itself in some weird way. And so you've got this thing that starts off with everybody needs to be accepted. Everybody needs space. Everybody needs freedom. And then it becomes this thing where it starts to oppress that and groups of people to the point that it becomes a caricature of itself. And I think and, and honestly, in this topic, we're going to be talking about today, rewilding, which is a movement I've been a part of. I'm always trying to like make sure that that doesn't happen. You know what I mean? That the yeah. people that I'm at least affiliated with, that we don't become caricatures of ourselves or that we admit that when we are, right? Because, I mean, I think it's funny here. I'm going to be talking about rewilding, wearing my, like, white shirt, my little black room with my microphone here because that's an aspect of my life. You know, you're like the wild man in the woods. Well, I mean, I'm not, obviously, right now. Um, there's woods outside, <laughs> right, four feet that way. But, but, you know, I'm not one of these people who lives like a pioneer in Alaska. I mean, I see these documentaries about guys that to me are like, wow, that guy's rugged, you know, <laughs> yeah. like I don't know that. And so I want to make sure that I'm never portrayed as that or let myself get portrayed as that just so that I don't end up making a mockery out of the stance that I'm trying to take in the world, you know? Yeah, that's a good point. I guess it all comes back to balance really at the end of the day. It's like, you know, with the I, I, some of the things I wanted to ask you about are st stuff you were talking about ten years ago. Like, is broccoli really broccoli? <laughs> you know, stuff like that. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, he's probably sick of talking about that because you're at a different yeah, phase, right. you know. But it's like people always ask me, "What's your latest smoothie recipe?" I'm like, I don't know. I don't, even, you know, I just throw a bunch of yeah. crap in the blender. I don't think about it. And I think we sort of go through different phases of interest oh, yeah. and focus. And other people are entering the game at a different phase, yeah. you know. So. Yeah. It's like I'm always yeah, just... when they're hearing and seeing stuff from 
before and they resonate with that right now, but you're, you've grown and that's a, you know, my friend, Jason Bozell, I think, you know, him from out that way and sure. uh, in LA and he just inspired me one day because he's a musician saying, I feel like what a lot of you guys speakers do is drop basically albums in time where you have like this phase where you talk about a certain thing. It's like an album. It's like a piece of art, but it's like a more like an installation or something or like a, I don't know, artistic bend that you have for a period of time. And then it shifts. And then it's like, oh man, I don't want to play the old hits right now. You know, like <laughs> I'm in some new, I got some new shit and I right, want to bring that. Right. But at the same time, it's like, and the other thing is I think I feel really blessed because I, I was able to get online at a certain age, like a certain maturity level that, thank God. Yeah. I didn't get a microphone 10 years before that because I probably would have thought I was ready for one. And I would be like, I'm already like so embarrassed of things I was saying and doing, you know, 10, 12 years ago. Yeah. It's like, I mean, you know, yeah. we're, I think we're learning how to use this Internet thing. And I think that's why also like going back to what we're talking about, the PC police, it's because the whole world's able to be part of the conversation right now. We just don't know how yet to manage that. So, you know, talk about cyberbullying. It's like you said, most of us feel like we're on eggshells right now. We can't we don't even know how to communicate safely. I feel like also with this like internet speaker guru podcaster thing, a lot of people who never could add power have power and they say all kinds of things now. And, and, and sometimes it's like looking back on it, it's like, oof. it's the double edged sword of, you know, I, when I try to explain to like an older person or something like my dad, who doesn't necessarily understand how podcasting works. I mean, he listens and he digs it, but it's like, um, I go, yeah, everyone just can have their own radio station. You get $150 worth of equipment off Amazon, plug it in your computer. If you have internet connection, like you are a radio station or you are a speaker or newscaster or even, you know, a self-proclaimed celebrity to a degree, you know? So you're right. It's like, it's got its positive because now you have so many brilliant minds that are able to get out of their bedroom and like project their, um, their teaching to the world. But you also have you know people that counter that. And there's like oftentimes wars around that, you know, we, and we've talked about that too, of like, you know, when you get negative criticism, I mean, I don't have near the following or exposure that you do. So my positive and negative feedback is minimal in comparison, but I was like, how do you deal with people when they're like, F you, you're full of it, blah, blah, blah. And you're like, I just don't even read that stuff. You know, and when I interviewed David Wolf, he's like, oh, man, I just I feel so much compassion for the people that hate me because it's really a broadcast of where they are consciously. And I know that it must be so painful to live in that space where, you, you know, you you get off on spending your time trolling. Like, how horrible can your life be? I was like, oh, that's a cool way to look <laughs> at it, you know? Yeah, I have like, I'm like that like 95% of the time. And then 5% of the time I tell somebody to basically metaphorically get the hell out of my house. Right. Like I do make examples of some people on my social media occasionally, not that much. I mean, I mostly don't, but like occasionally somebody says something that I feel like I need to say, Hey, there's a boundary here. You're just not welcome to be here like that, but I'll do it in such a way where they feel like, fuck this guy, I'm out of here. And I'm <laughs> right. Like, right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I resist the temptation to kind of like mm, prove people wrong. You know, I feel that self-righteousness come up and I'm like, oh, they're not seeing it. Let me show you like in a passive aggressive yeah, way yeah. how stupid you are, <laughs> yeah, but be yeah. really nice and spiritual about it. <laughs> it's like <laughs> I do a lot of like, I've already walked down that road because I get a, a lot from vegans. Right. So it's like, to me, it's just so amazing. It's like when you've been like, I did it for so long. You know, I was that for so long. So when somebody comes and they, you know, you know, they've been at it for like a year or like nine months or maybe like 18 months, they've been a vegan or something and they just hammer you with stuff. And then they tell you that you didn't keep doing it because you were doing it wrong. It's like, it's just like, I've already been down that road. I'll say like, let's talk in five years, 
you know, when you're ready, <laughs> like, because I know where that goes. I know I already have been down the road. I know where it goes. You know, yeah. I mean, it's amazing. It's like when, when people talk to me, like when people who have more experience in something than me, talk to me about it and give me, it's like, shut up and listen. Absolutely. Yeah. I wanna, it's how you learn. It's yeah. how you learn. Like, even if you don't agree, just anyway. Yeah, I think it's um, it goes down to the principle of of the open mind, you know. And and years ago, I had a mentor that really would talk to me a lot about staying open minded. And I always perceived the open mind principle to be like, "Cool, I'm totally open to new information." And he would always school me and say, "No, when you have a closed mind, it's not only that new information can't get in; it's that the old bullshit information that you're hanging on to can't get out. It's yeah, a closed wow. door, and you're behind the door in that fucking vault." And yeah. not, and nothing. Yeah. Not only is nothing new getting in, but yeah. all the stuff that is actually erroneous that you're living by, yeah. you're wow. stuck with that. And I was like, wow. I always thought about that. It's sort of like this fluid mind where at any moment I have to be willing to let go of my most cherished beliefs, you yeah. know, and the things that I think are correct, and at the same time be open to new ones. And I think that's a good lesson for anyone that's you know partaking in the internet sphere of of media that's available to us now is like always consider it's like the feedback i got yesterday she's like you know what the wording she used i don't even know what heteronormative means i'd have to google it but i'm a guy so it's as i said it'd be difficult to not well, actually, be that can way. i talk let, can i just yeah yeah please but it, but i did well the point is before I, before i let you go is i i was like okay cool i said please suggest some guests that would give you provide the perspective that you're looking for and she suggested kim and ami and i was like that's awesome thank you so had i been combative and been closed off to the feedback which was you know a little politely negative i would have missed an opportunity to actually bring a perspective on the show that i would really like to hear so go well i actually now i'm on a whole nother thing because okay. it's funny well because I th i'd say kim's a friend of mine i mean i have her on my show all the time i promote all her courses and i would say she's pretty heteronormative i mean Okay. <laughs> so, so heteronormative is like people who I, I guess make heterosexual behavior or make genders in the traditional sense normal. Oh, I see. Is that what that means? Like okay. you, you speak from this perspective that a traditional male female role is normal. Right. Well, I, you know, right. it, in my own defense, I mean, before I started the interview with John, well, I'm not saying you do that. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, that's what that's what it is, right? But when I started the interview with John, I said, "Hey, I'm, you know, I'm a straight dude, and like." These are the questions that I want to know the answer yeah, to. So yeah. if you're gay or trans or whatever, like, I don't know, you might not get anything out of this. I don't know how to ask a question from that perspective because I can't subjectively know what it's like to live in that. It's not your job to. Well, it's not because this not is my show. It's not your job to. It's my yeah, fucking I show. Mean, that's a thing. I pay for the show. I spend hours and hours in every episode, so I can talk about whatever I want. But if I had grown up a lesbian, then I'm sure I would be asking different people different questions, yeah. but I'm not. So. You'd have a different show. Exactly. Yeah. Man, I was like pretty shocked to see MTV's video, uh, you know, hey, white guys or oh, white guy dude, resolutions. So racist. Oh, my God. <laughs> Like, how did yeah. that happen? You know, how know. has this happened? It's I, like, are you talking to me right now? Because I, like I said before, I'm on board. Like, why are you talking to me like this? You know, yeah. what are you talking about? And like, it's not a video like, hey, racists, hey, racist people or something or, you know, hey, bigots. It's like, white guy, like me? What are you talking about? <laughs> Dude. Oh, Lord. Well, listen, there there are, I mean, actually, we could just probably have a great episode shooting the shit, and, and we will, but there were a no, couple, there were a couple <laughs> things I def, so, you know, audience, forgive us for the just fun banter, it's like we're talking on the phone, and you got to listen, hopefully there was something uh, engaging there for you, 
But I did want to talk about this idea of domestication and rewilding. I want to mm-hmm. take a time machine back a little bit. I'm just I'm reminiscing when I first found you and your work. Uh, you were one of the first couple guys to talk about spring water, and it sort of rang a bell. I was like, oh yeah, I used to get spring water when I was a little kid, and it got me on the whole water trip. And I even emailed you at some point when I was like a super fan, and I was like, dude, I'm getting <laughs> I'm getting a Kangen water like alkaline machine. Is that dope? And you were like politely like, yeah, just go get spring water. Uh, but and then I had a video of yours that was like magical elixirs, and you were like in this castle-looking dungeon thing with your long um, pigtails and tattoos, like making all these crazy elixirs. I went uh, they're on, braids when you're uh, braids. Okay, sorry. <laughs> there I go, being um, non-gender correct or whatever. Yeah, um, funny braids. Thank you. I'm, I'm so, very offended. So um, yes, take that very personally. So I got that video and I went on Mountain Rose Herbs and ordered like every single goddamn herb that you talked about. (laughs) And you know what's fucking ridiculous? Dude, in my kitchen right now, I swear to God, I still, this is like, I don't know how many years ago, I still have some of those Mountain Rose Herbs because I could never get through them. (laughs) You need to throw them them away. That's what you told me last time and I still have them. Listen, (laughs) listen, herbs herbs are like, this is not just for you, it's for everybody. Herbs are like a one to two year kind of a thing that you keep. Yeah, you know this they're like, not. A, this is like, like they're not like a multiple year. This is, I mean, come on, you know, this is, buying from Mountain Rose Herbs. This is five years ago or something. Yeah, so okay, yeah, I, will. I know it's I time promise. to it's compost. That so, stuff. so how, my question is in a in a brief way: How did you become you know a regular dude out there in the world, living your life to someone that was making elixir videos and getting all into herbalism and deer antler and um, you know pine pollen and all the stuff that you are now a purveyor of over at Sir Thrival? Like, what was the beginnings of your career? Well, yeah, my career, it's funny to even call it that. Well, I'd never been like a normal dude living like a normal life. So I want to be clear about that. I mean, I always was pretty fringe and lived kind of on the outskirts of the rest, like the civilized world. Like I always kind of slipped through those cracks quite a bit. Um, but I was just part of this foodie movement, you know, particularly I was really connected to the raw food scene and the superfood scene and all that madness and all like the herbal scene and all that when it was kind of blowing up a lot. And I was, I'd been part of that world for a while and I was just sort of coming out of having been a vegan a long time. That was like a dietary dogma in that community. And I was not doing that anymore. I was kind of, um, finding a path back out of that. And I was at a lot of retreats and a lot of events and people asked me to talk. It really, it all started. I gave a talk. It was like a weekend workshop that was happening or something like that. I was making blended drinks for people as part of the kitchen staff and people liked the drinks and they asked me to explain it and it got videotaped and it got on YouTube. And this is like at the beginning of YouTube and it just, people liked it. And that's how it started for me. I just right place, right time, right voice for the moment. And I think there was, that was a big enough community at the time. And I was saying some new stuff to that community and that community was ready for some new information and it just rolled. And before I knew it, I was traveling all over Canada and the States and going to Europe and going to South America and like giving talks. I mean, I never, that just came out of nowhere for me. It wasn't my initial intention. Um, and then it just kept rolling and rolling and rolling and it set me on a journey because it's like when you feel the responsibility of talking to so many people. As you know, it's like it changes the game for you. It's like, oh, now it's not just about me, but it's about other people too. And I went on a kind of a personal journey to try to figure out lifestyle and try to figure out health and movement and all these things. And what I arrived at, I guess, you know, in the beginning, you know, you're still trying to find your groove. Like, what's my work really about? And it took a couple of years for it to solidify. And in the end, what I kind of realized it's about is 
human domestication. What domestication is for plants and animals and and biology at large, and then what it means for us. And the thing that I think that I bring this may be kind of a new concept for a lot of people is the idea of looking at Homo sapiens ourselves as a domesticated species, because there's a just a big taboo in place that keeps people from looking at it in that way. We look at the dog domestication, cat domestication, lettuce domestication, but people domestication isn't something we talk a lot about, starting to kind of filter in. And then I'd say the really unique thing I offer on that is looking at how we can actually start to reverse that trend a little bit and reestablish human wildness again without the taboos that have been placed on it. Because there are big, silly, ridiculous caricature taboos that we've put all over human domestication that it's maybe time, I mean, our human wildness, it's time we start to let go of some of that because the thing about domestication is it leads to the degeneration of a species. So it doesn't help a species long-term. Usually when we read about domestication, I notice this all the time because I read a lot about domestication, there's a bias in the writers they start out from the assumption that this has ascended us out of the miry pit of the hell of the wild where we struggled and, and fought you know, tooth and nail for survival and every day was so hard and domestication rescued us from that. So they already have that bias when they write. But the reality is that's the same bias that we use to destroy Native American peoples, call them savages. Savage just is a word that means wild in French. So uh, it's a, a word that we apply to, oh, these are wild people. Therefore, we can destroy them. We are the civilized ones. We are the righteous ones. We are the enlightened ones. We are the civilized ones who bring the light of civilization. And what we did is we went around the world and found intact groups of people who were largely free of the diseases that we suffer from. That's, I think, the most fascinating part of all this, free of diabetes, free of heart disease, free of cancer, free of freaking cavities for Christ's sake. I mean, these people were way healthier than we are today in many ways. Certainly they had issues. It wasn't utopia. You know, no matter how we live, we're going to have issues. But these were healthier people. Their communities and family groups were intact. There's a level of happiness we just don't experience as a culture. We have this like issue with depression, right? And fatigue and suicide and all these things that we just don't like see in those groups in the same way, at least. But rather than looking at those people and saying, hey, learn something from these people, we literally just like stomp them out around the world. And it's a campaign that's still not ended. I mean, it's still happening. Parts of the world today, right now, there are loggers killing native people in the Amazon right now, uncon uncontacted tribes um, still going on. And we've never really stopped to look at, hey, what are the problems with human domestication? What's the purpose of human domestication? And why are we doing this experiment called civilization. Hey, that's how I got started, Luke. <laughs> My own subjective human experience, and I want to get into some of the negative effects of domestication, and then, of course, offer a solution to kind of mitigate those. But when I look at domesticated animals, a friend of mine has this breed of dog called a Shiba Inu. Really oh, yeah. cool looking dog, kind of looks like a fox, you know, and it's like, I don't know, it's a, a bred dog. I guess, yeah, I guess you get it from a breeder, you know, fox colored at least and somewhat shaped. And this dog is just you know, no offense, I don't think my friend will ever hear this, but this dog is a disaster. I mean, it's like constantly rubbing its face on the ground. It's all neurotic. It's just, it's digestive problems. It's just not a physically sound organism or even in some ways. I mean, it's a sweet dog. Of course, you love it, but it's kind of like, you know, the kid that's not all there, but you love it anyway. You know, <laughs> it's like unconditional love for sure, but definitely this dog, there's like problems there. You know, it's like, it's totally inbred. 
And that is, uh, you know, kind of a manifestation. I always look at that dog and go, oh, man, you know, like whatever it came from, I guess the, the gray wolf way back when definitely is not having those kind of problems. You know, when you look at like a wild animal that that animal originated from, it's badass. It's the beast. It's the king of the forest. And you're like, this little thing is like just so sickly and neurotic. And then I think about my own life. For me, it was like, I think the biggest negative impact psychologically has been, I want to get your feedback on this, is I never really had a sense of community or closeness or intimacy. I mean, I had family and they loved me, but it was still very fragmented. I didn't have a village. There weren't, you know, tons of people holding me when I was a baby and I wasn't part of the ecology. I was always disconnected. So how does this begin to affect us as we um, go through our adolescence and infancy? Yeah, well, I think you just kind of hit it there. I guess it'd be like if we're talking about wolves for a moment there. And when I say wolves, I mean dogs too, because dogs are wolves. And that was the first piece that really like got this started for me. Because I just started off going like, wait a second, like where the hell do dogs come from? You know, I looked into it, realized that they were a domesticated wolf and started to really think about that. And then I saw the metaphor with ourselves. And the thing about dogs is that we can improve the health of a dog by giving it the conditions that a wolf needs to thrive. And if we want to really have healthy dogs, we have to understand wolf ecology because they are wolves, but they're domesticated wolves. Well, if we want to have healthy people, we need to look at the ecology, the conditions in which healthy wild humans were and are raised. And you just kind of nailed it there. There's all these factors for like a, a indigenous child, a wild child, a kid raised outside of civilization in an intact, healthy community. And I want to pause for a second and just say, one of the biases that's been planted in our heads is this idea of the impoverishment of indigenous peoples. So it would be unfair for us to look at native people in North America today on reservations and think, oh, that was what their lives have always been. Well, we know that. We see those commercials you know, with kids from Africa who are in squalor, starving conditions, who, you know, we're being asked to give money to. And we think, ah, that's what it's like without civilization. But that's an absolute lie, right? It's not what it's like without civilization until civilization comes, undermines your community, pushes you off your lands, changes your traditional diet, gives you a religion, forces you to go to church, makes you, I mean, all those things. And we end up with this situation that looks really, really bad. So I want to be clear when I'm talking about wild peoples, I'm talking about pre-contact with Europeans when they were intact peoples. <laughs> Before they were assaulted by the beginnings of the New World Order, <laughs> basically. Yeah, I, essentially, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And became a couple of things, became a labor force right. in many instances and became a uh, genetic breeding pool in many instances, which we can talk about later. But. I mean, that's the thing. It's like, I think without hearing your work and getting concepts like this, I would think that we have it so easy. Like I live in an apartment, I work on my computer, maybe I have a great corporate job because I went to college and... You know, I'm living this life that I think is so much easier than like a native hunter-gatherer person yeah. who has been untouched by the European settlers. When in right. fact, right, what isn't their life like, oh, they dance at night, take hallucinogens, drink fermented <laughs> drinks, like bone a lot. They work a couple hours a day to go hunting, gather some berries. Like their life is actually super chill, is it not, comparatively to our working 80 hours a week and dying of, you know, stress-related diseases? 
I mean, we we obviously are are making a, a gross simplification, but <laughs> I but know, yeah, I know. Yeah, it's a gross simplification, but yeah. So you know, a couple other things like you mentioned before, like imagine every child is born at home, right? Every child's born at home uh, to uh, not just a nuclear family. Right, like you were describing before, you come from a broken nuclear family. I come from a broken nuclear family. Nuclear family means you, your mom, your dad, and your siblings. Like that's it. These people are born to not just a nuclear family, but also an extended family, and then to a whole foraging group. So about about fifty people, and they would know you would have grown up knowing those people intimately your entire life. As a child, you would have been raised as a sovereign entity. So essentially a small adult, not uh, a kid, nobody's property, and not being monitored and told what to do all the time. By age four or five, you're foraging half your calories. You're able to travel on your own. You're able to move from group to group. You trust everyone. You know everyone explicitly. You're never allowed to cry more than 10 or 20 seconds before another adult picks you up. Right, you're born into a healthy life way where you're not going to have to, like you mentioned, go to school in the way that we think of, where you're not going to have to go to work in the way that we think of, where your work activities are going to total something like 15 to 20 hours a week on average, the rest of your time being leisure, where you don't have this idea of monogamous relationship in the way that we think of it, and marriage in the way that we think of it. You don't have a boss of any kind. There's no king. There's no ruling class. There's no police state. I mean, it is, in many ways, it does sound like a utopia when you start to lay out how it works. It also freaks out those who've maintained power structures and they want to wipe these kind of people out anywhere we come into contact with them. But yeah, in many ways, we deal with far more stress we are degenerating rapidly. We know we have a suite of degenerative diseases that we're suffering from, starving to death. I mean, we're essentially so undernourished. When you look at the hunter-gatherer diets as described by Western Price, the dentist who went around studying them in the 1900s, he said that they were getting on average 10 times our fat-soluble nutrients, four times our water-soluble nutrients. So these are people who were far better nourished than us. Again, it's like this idea we think, oh, they must have been struggling to get enough food. No, <laughs> we're struggling to get enough nutrients. We've got more food than we can eat. We just aren't getting enough nutrients no matter how much of it we eat because it's such poor quality food. They may have had less food overall in some regards as far as food security the way we think of it, but they had far more nutrition. And another interesting thing is they never had famine the way that farming civilizations have. I mean, that, was, that doesn't exist in the natural world. They just had a much simpler world, a much simpler life, and much better health than we do. Uh, again, a gross caricature of the situation, but, but yeah, largely well, in the, in the interest of time, and I think in just the way that my brain works, gross simplifications are good. You yeah. know, it's like otherwise we, you know, we'd have to have a two-hour show like just on one little piece of that. So I, yeah, you know, yeah, I acknowledge that, and thank you for mentioning that. You know, you have your finicky listeners that are like, wait, that's not actually factual, but yeah, it's always good to say it's kind of an overview. So psychologically then you know you've had gabor mate on your show who i've heard once once if not twice uh, who's an addiction specialist and he really opened my eyes to the idea of um, trauma and how that affects um, 
adults as they age and develop addictions, alcoholism, drug addiction, whatever. And that, you know, it kind of got me thinking because when I would hear that, I go, yeah, well, I experienced trauma. It's like obvious when my behavioral problems started and then drug use started, it was like such a blatant chain reaction to some trauma that I experienced as a kid on a few occasions. But his whole thing is that, no, the way that our culture brings up kids is just, there's an inherent amount trauma of trauma. Machine. Yeah. The trauma machine. And the trauma like comes from a lack of touch, a lack of community, a lack of that human and connection. Gabor, Gabor on the show, like he wouldn't call himself a rewilder probably, but he acknowledging how indigenous people raised their kids essentially with the understanding. I mean, I'm going to paraphrase him. So I, you know, I hope I'm being fair to what he said on my show. I believe I am. He was essentially saying that the conditions we're in now are not our ecological conditions that these are an aberration of our ecology. They create trauma. There's a way that worked. It worked for, I think another thing to give some context to all this, I'm gonna use the screen here. See, does that look right? Yeah. It, okay, so arms, here's- Arms here. open wide, yeah. All right. For, so, for you guys so, listening, you have to watch this on, uh, on YouTube. Okay, so I basically, I'm like stretching my hands out. Here's human history. Here's when civilization started. The last 5% of our existence. 95% of human existence was lived before civilization. And the groups of people that survived up until, let's call it the manifest destiny, Europeans going around the world wiping out indigenous groups, the people that had survived until then were survivors with lineages all the way back. So you got to understand that a lot of things had been worked out by then. We're talking about a couple hundred thousand years so imagine what you work out as a people group over the course of 200,000 years. I mean, look at what's going on we talked about earlier. Look what's going on politically. Let's look at what's going on with political correctness, gender, race, uh, sexuality, and orientation. All these things that are kind of up in the conversation right now, we haven't dealt with and worked out. And we're working them out now. Because we've been here for 200 years. A little over 200 years. What do you work out after 200,000 years? You definitely figure out how to raise kids. You figure out what ceremonies and initiations are needed. You figure out what needs to be eaten in order to have the full suite of nutrients necessary. You figure out what plants are medicinal. I often laugh like when, when bot, ethnobotanists are like, I just don't understand how these indigenous people figured out how these plant medicines work. It's like freaking 200,000 years. <laughs> You figure some stuff out. I figured out a lot of things in 38 years, 200,000 years with no TV. You're going to figure some stuff out, you know? So yeah, no, no, sort of no Instagram about, either. <laughs> no, yeah, exactly. No dopamine fix at every turn. So, yeah. so essentially what he was kind of saying was like, in the absence of that, we create all this trauma. And basically our civilization is a trauma machine pumping out traumatized children. Now, what I think is fascinating about that is that an indigenous person would have had tremendous traumas throughout their life. You know, it's not like you just can live that lifestyle and not ever get injured, right? right? Eaten, eaten, by a, eaten by a bear. Uh, things happen, right? War with another tribe and they come in and spear oh, yeah. your, your you'd, you'd wife in the head. Yeah. You'd have seen some nasty things, but you'd have had short-term stresses that ended. And for whatever reason, we don't see those same kind of traumas. But what we have is like a constant stress. It never ends from the time that we become cognizant of our lives, like until we're dead. It's just like nonstop stress put on us. And like you said, a lack of touch, a lack of love, a lack of an intact community. And I've been having Arthur Haynes on my show a lot talking about community. 
you know, and he's saying you can't really have a community in the absence of shared land, in a shared land base. So you got to understand too, these are people who don't only have intact families, but they have an intact ecology. They have lived on this same bit of land for generations going back further than they, you know, most indigenous people, you ask like how far back they go. And it's like, well, we're the original people. You know, I mean, that's like the belief. We go all the way back. We've lived here with this mountain over here and this lake over here. You know that place intimately. You know the animals, you know the plants, and you share all that in common. That's a community, right? We talk about our like social network communities. Like these aren't communities. These are a bunch of narcissists jacking each other off. <laughs> but it's not... <laughs> It's not community, you know what I mean? A community is people live together and are related too. And that's, I think, another thing is like, it doesn't work when we try to do these modern day experiments. Like we're all gonna just get a house together on a piece of property and we're all gonna live there and we're gonna share, we're gonna be a community. It's like, you're not related. You do not have shared fate. It's not like these groups we're talking about where they lived in community where it was like, those are your uncles, those are your aunts, that's your grandfather and your grandmother and your great-grandfather and your great-grandmother and those are your little brothers and nieces and nephews and you all live in common with a shared genetic and a shared fate on a piece of land you've lived on forever. You think, I mean, you could just be ripped out of all that, born in a hospital, slapped on the ass, stuck in a school, pop out and not have a drug problem? or uh, some other like psychological issue that you got to face down. It's like impossible. It's too much trauma. This is not how we're meant to be raised. And it's incidentally, it's why we end up with dogs like you were talking about before too, that want to chew off their own legs. It's like, it's trauma. They're better adjusted than us often, but I mean, it's trauma. That's so funny, dude. Right as you said, dogs that chew off their own legs, I just noticed I was picking at my fingernails. Which <laughs> I like bite my fingernails like crazy now, ever since I quit smoking cigarettes. I don't know which is worse. At least cigarettes like are awesome. <laughs> I'm like biting your nails. <laughs> but um, I'm sitting here, I'm like, oh shit, I'm like one of those dogs that thought occurred to me right there. So let's go, you mentioned hospitals and how we, you know, how we enter the physical body, right? How that enters the world now. And there's something you've talked about and I haven't heard you talk about in a while, because as you said, you go through trends of areas of interest, right? But um, I had never even considered how brutal and evil being circumcised is as a male, as I was. Obviously, on a conscious level, I don't remember that. But it's one of those weird things that we've just accepted as part of our culture. Like, oh, yeah, that's just, there's a reason for that. And we, it's just a false assumption. We go, oh, yeah, it's, yeah, otherwise it's like germy or, you know, something. It's like, wait, how did we make it 200,000 years without someone slicing our penis in half? Like, What's the deal with that? Because I think it's important for people to know. I mean, I know people that have kids all the time, and it's like, I don't even want to mention it because I doubt that many of them will even understand because they're indoctrinated into the allopathic medical viewpoint that's like, oh, that's just automatically what you do, snip, snip. And it's like, dude, would you hold an infant down and slice its genitals with a scalpel? I mean, I wouldn't want to see that done. I wouldn't want to do it. And I certainly, if I could go back in time, wouldn't want it to be done by me. So... Even just aside from that, just what's the birthing process look like now uh, versus a natural human? Trauma machine. Yeah, yeah. No, I think we do it, and I think it's it's not fair that we call it. Look, if the, if the political correctness police and the social justice warriors can make us change all the words in our lexicon, then we can change the word circumcision. Be called, which is male genital mutilation. Circumcision means to cut a circle. 
I don't think that that does justice to what's actually happening yeah, there. That sounds pretty innocent. Hey, we're just going to cut a circle with the kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah no yeah, problem. Yeah. We'll it's just like, take him in the other like, room. It's no big deal. Do that to a sandwich or a slice of cheese, maybe. I don't know if you, you know, circumcision. So, you know, a, a couple things I'll, I want to do a little groundwork here. First, I just want to say that American circumcision has very little to do with Judaism or religion as we tend to think of it as like a sort of a, a Jewish practice. Obviously, lots of boys in the United States, myself included, were circumcised not for any, you know, reasons having to do with, you know, Levitical laws. I also want to point out that girls in the United States were being circumcised until very recently. I mean, this just ended in the 1970s. I don't think what? it was banned. <laughs> oh, Wait, yeah. what? Oh, yeah. And it wasn't banned in the United States until I believe it was 1986 when it was officially banned. It stopped being paid for by Blue Cross in 19, I want to say 70, don't quote me on this, 76 or 77, something like that, 79. Somewhere late 70s insurance companies or the last insurance company stopped paying for female circumcision. Which so, yeah, give us a breakdown of what that means exactly. Oh, and for, for you ladies, if you, I, I recently spoke with a woman, she's like, she goes, I encountered an uncircumcised penis for the first time, and I totally didn't know what to do with it because I'd never seen one before. It was like a foreign species. Oh, um, I mean, this is going to eat up some <laughs> podcasts, but we, gotta, we got no, to. It's cool. It's, it's cool. just this important topic. So, it's so, important topic. First of all, and ladies, yeah. ladies, this joke that you guys like to tell about like how uncircumcised penises are weird looking and whatever, can you stop with that joke? Because it is, I mean, talk about offensive. Like, first of all, you gotta. that's just how a man looks. And that's a weird perspective to come from. That's like me being like, oh, women with breasts that haven't been cut off? That's weird. It's like, no, that's not weird. That's just how women come. Right, Boys are right. If you're like, oh, it's so, it's so gross when a woman doesn't have implants. Yeah, like, ew. ew. <laughs> um, for, foreskins have a purpose, one of which is to protect the glands of the penis. So the glands is the head of the penis, which is meant to be this shiny, pinkish, purple, uh, waxed, member that's covered all the time, which gives incredible sensitivity to it. Ladies, you understand this because you have a clitoral hood and the clitoral hood is the same anatomically, the same structure that is the foreskin. So that piece of good feeling tissue that covers your clit all day, imagine that was gone and your clit was just exposed all the time. So it's rubbing all the time on your clothes and it became dry and it became calloused. Most penises, which women think, oh, that's a normal looking penis is actually a dried out, scarred, calloused penis. Ouch. Now, I think that's important to know. The foreskin secretes smegma, it's called, which is, I remember an insult when we were kids, oh, smegma. So that's an actual wax that the body produces to lubricate and cover and protect the glands of the penis. But it also, pheromones are produced by uh, glands inside the foreskin. So all that gets removed. Those pheromones help women to find correct mates for them genetically. So um, that's all cut away. And we're talking about an amount of skin that equals about half of the skin of the penis is cut off of boys when they're circumcised. Now, this whole story of like it's cleaner, healthy has been absolutely been debunked. So that's not even that's not even on the table any more than saying you need to remove your eyelids because you're, how else will you keep your eyeballs clean? I mean, that is just so ridiculous, right? We don't need to remove female clitoral hoods in order to keep clits clean, right? It's not that difficult. To, your body cleans itself anyway. But so that's not the reason why. If we look back to why circumcision is so popular in the United States, and it is losing popularity in a lot of places, particularly out where you are. It's like much less common now, but it actually goes back to uh, trying to stop masturbation. 
That is the part that I think is really strange. So there was a belief going on during the sort of age of eugenics where they believed a lot of diseases were caused by masturbating and they thought we got to stop kids from masturbating. So they thought that if they could make the penis head more calloused and dry and it felt less good and they could attach trauma to the penis, to touching the penis, that they could create a traumatic sexual experience early in life, boys would be less likely to do it. But they thought that about girls too. So girls who had a particularly strong sexuality and would get caught playing with themselves, you'd bring your daughter right down to the hospital and have her clit removed, a clitoridectomy, or you could have her clit hood taken off. Um, all that stuff was happening, boys and girls. And you know this, I mean, we've talked about it, Luke. Dr. Kellogg was a big player in all that who brought us Kellogg's cereal. And so he, in addition to being a huge proponent of circumcision, he's there's these great Kellogg quotes. Well, they aren't great, they're disgusting, but he's talking about how important it is that it really hurts when you do it and that you do it without an anesthesia so that you really anchor in the pain. And with girls, he thought it would be best to use a, a type of acid to actually burn the clit away. So he, he was an interesting character. I mean, his cereal, Kellogg's Corn Flakes, was developed to, with the intention reducing sex drive. I think it's funny that people still eat that. You know, graham cracker, same thing. Graham, Dr. Graham, another one. And his graham cracker was designed to reduce sex drive by getting people to stop eating meat, which they thought kind of lifted libido, and I think it does, uh, in the morning. They didn't want people eating that for breakfast. They wanted to eat in cereals to try to, the grains, the product of domesticated civilizations to try to reduce sex drive. Well, anyway, skip ahead, the surgeries that were done on girls are now, it's now called female genital mutilation around the world. We understand that this creates trauma for girls. Here's another thing, I'm, you know, because there's all this little white, white males, white males, white males. There's all this stuff about how all our privileges, I mean, you know, Bill Burmade, that's a great joke I heard the other day. He was talking about like, we have all this privilege, but he's like, you know, when the Titanic's going down, it's you put the women and the kids on the boat, right? First. Like, <laughs> right, right. like I don't see that that's going to change anytime soon. Those kind of expectations on males, right? And what about this circumcision thing? It's like with girls, it's called female genital mutilation. When you do the identical surgery to boys, it's called circumcision and doctors promote it. Doctors get paid to do it. Doctors try to convince parents to do it with all kinds of tactics from the it's cleaner to you have less chance of transmission of sexual diseases to he'll look more like his daddy, all these like pressure tactics to get parents to do it. Is it There's just kind no, of a, is it a way to just tack on some extra line items on your birth bill? I mean, that's part of it. It is a hundred, it's $150, I think on average that you make doing the surgery. Oh, not, so, not, a, not mean, a big ticket item for a doctor. Not a big but. ticket item, but also like, hey, man, you want an extra 150 bucks? It's also, it is an incentive. I would say there's a financial incentive to do it. Right. The thing about it that's so crazy, if you watch them online, if you watch circumcisions being performed, is they're done without anesthesia. So, you know, kids are screaming. Boys are basically, so infant boys, it's usually a couple days after they're born, are tied down on a kind of cross-shaped thing, right? So one arm, two arms, and both legs tied down while their penis is mutilated without anesthesia. And we think somehow this is not going to affect a boy's sexuality later in life. So I'll kind of conclude it like this. I wrote this a couple years ago, an article I did called Insensitive Dickheads. And I basically said, if you want men to stop being insensitive dickheads, then maybe we should stop doing a surgery that causes them to have an insensitive dickhead because circumcision leads to an insensitive dickhead by causing callousness 
on the dickhead. Wow. So it's a bit of like, well, the thing is, is that there's been some science now to connect personality disorder to circumcision. In particular, um, what they found is that it creates this sensation of being somewhat robotic or disconnected from your emotions. So many men in our culture have been so wounded by this surgery. They, I think, instinctively blame their moms because at that age, you perceive your mother as your protector and you're taken from her when the surgery happens and then you're brought back to her. Many moms will describe the difference in their son when they get them back after the circumcision. So my mom tells a story of hearing me screaming down the hall, you know, and how that affected her and then getting me back and that I'm like completely in a place of distrust, closed off, shell-shocked. And then we think, oh no, the boy's gonna be fine. But we somehow instinctively know that a girl wouldn't be fine. So I don't know what this is all about, but seems to me a little bit like in domestication of barnyard animals where you cut off parts. Right. You know, right. you cut off the tail of a pig, you cut off the beak of a chicken. Man, I could go on and on about this. I get wow. so passionate about it. No, well, you know, it's done, it's it, done to me, you know? It's like Yeah, me too. Well it's funny because I never I never thought about it. I mean, I think Growing up, not like I spent a lot of time in the locker room. I was, you know, I got kicked off any team they tried to force me onto. <laughs> but um, I mean, I think I was probably relieved that I was like most of the other boys. You know, when you like grow up and see pornography, most of the guys there look like you. It's like, okay, cool, I'm cool. Like, I've, everyone's like insecure about that, especially when you're a teenage boy. Like, you don't want to be the standout, you know, at least not in that way. So um, I never really thought about it, actually, until I heard you speak about it. I was like, oh, my God, to contextualize it in that way. So I'm really glad. And that to also, let's point out, like, those guys who have intact foreskins, they have a better sex life than us. They just do. I mean, because their penis works. So, you know, I think we need to remember, like, the... You know, like as a guy, like you obviously masturbated throughout your entire life, like I've me never, and every other. I've never done that. Yeah, no, never. And you need a lubricant usually, right? You know, if you don't use a lubricant, you're going to pay a price eventually because <laughs> um, you're going to cheap yourself up. So we need a lubricant. But the foreskin acts like a lubricant because it slips over back and forth over the head of the penis. So it allows, that's another reason they thought if we can cut that thing off, boys would be going to be less likely to masturbate which obviously just wasn't true. In fact, I, I wouldn't be surprised to find out if maybe it leads to more yeah. than anything. But it also, also just drives up lotion sales worldwide. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Imagine, because I feel like Vaseline and Jurgens benefited dramatically yeah. from, from this. Um, Stop no, but through the roof. Like, like the, the also the way that the penis would work inside of a vagina. So imagine you're having heteronormative sex with um, an intact penis. What you have is like the vagina sheathing that penis and then that penis can slide in and out of its foreskin. So rather than just the exposed penis head going in and out, you have a third membrane slipping over the head of the penis. So it's like you're being masturbated while you have sex. Wow. If that makes sense. So Bonus. you have like a third hand in this, in this <laughs> thing, right? Yeah, so, yeah. so there's more sensation. And men who get circumcised as adults, and shockingly, there are people who decide to do that. It's interesting to read their reports of the difference in sensation that they have after they do it. Because they lose tremendous amounts of sexual sensation and sexual pleasure as a result. One of the best things I heard was a guy saying, it's like you've had color vision all your life, and now you only have black and white vision. 
like the reduction in the quality of his sexual experience. So I think that's another thing that needs to be brought up is it robs boys of having the sex experience that they're after. And what we end up doing, I think, is really pounding away sexually because it doesn't feel right. So we're trying to get that sensation that's not there and we end up being a little bit more aggressive and a little more rough than actually. Sometimes I, when I see pornography, I think like that, that a deep, level because you know how you know how hard it is like uh, Luke I'm no, I know you've never looked at pornography but if you ever did you know how hard it is to find pornography where the woman isn't being degraded in some way you know what I'm talking about yeah, it's like yeah, for sure and I often wonder like if at a deep level this is like this anger about penis mutilation being played out against the girls who are in these videos because it's like it's so rare to see a woman being respected and pornography, even like the girls who appear to enjoy having sex still get treated really badly. And I feel like there's an anger there that comes from, from mutilation of the sex organs of these guys and, and guys at large. And, and we all, so many of us carry that trauma that it's just somehow subconsciously understood. That's an interesting correlation. Yeah. I never thought about it that way. For I don't sure. think it's really, I see it like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I don't know. There's, there's a lot of variables there with like the men who are producing them, the men who are acting them in, and the men who are watching them. Maybe there's a, you know, a subsect of men who aren't part of either of those um, elements of it who just are neutral about pornography. If they were making it and watching it and being in it, they'd be just making sweet love and it would be very gentle and loving. Right, like, like there's like, yeah, I know, if we saw more uncircumcised guys. We'd right, have what if there's like, str like a whole genre of porn that's just uncut and it was totally different and like super high consciousness and stuff. <laughs> Interesting, if someone's listening and you, you know, want a movement, that might be one to start. So that brings us to the end of part one of this two-part episode with my friend Daniel Vitalis. What a treat that was to sit down and just trip out on this guy's brain, right? He has so much amazing information, and I just love his perspective on life and on humanity. I never, ever get tired of listening to this guy talk. I mean, I really think I've heard every single episode of his podcast. I've, I've heard him speak just untold times. Really cool, fascinating human being that thinks outside of the box. So I'm very happy to be able to share that with you. Don't forget to come back this Friday and catch part two because that's when shit gets really crazy. The first part was actually a little bit tame. In part two, we go sort of deeper down the rabbit hole. So catch that this Friday. And don't forget to get over to thrival.com and use the code LUKE2016 to save 10% off your order. Nice little bonus there for you. Daniel's a classy guy. He's not much of a self-promoter, but I'm just telling you, like, his company is freaking awesome. He doesn't talk about it that much, and I sort of wish he would more. Maybe I could do an episode with him where he just breaks down all the products that they sell because they are freaking amazing. So again, some of the things I dig when you're going to get over there and get lost and not know what to get, the colostrum, the pine pollen, the bone broth, the elk antler, and then the chaga and reishi. Any one of those is going to change the game for you. So go ahead and go to surthrival.com, enter the code LUKE2016 at checkout, and save 10%.